Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood from trappingtoday.com. It's great to have you here. Um, as I'm recording this, uh, we are in the middle of a nor'easter snowstorm here in northern Maine. Um, across the northeast has been a pretty big storm going on here. And uh, actually get the day off of work due to the storm. So have some opportunity to sit here in the shelter of the fur shed for a couple hours and work on things. And uh, watch the snow and feel the wind blowing past. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, it's uh, just adding another oh, 08 to 12 inches on possibly 14 or 15, they're saying. Uh, onto our 3 feet of snow that's on the ground right now. Um, and uh, it's been quite an quite an adventure working on different projects, uh, keeping our cows taken care of in in the blizzard and and uh, in the deep snow. But anyway, um, <clears throat> head as I record this, it is the eighth of March, and tomorrow is the big fur harvesters auction. So uh, last episode I talked about results from the NAFA fur auction. And the fur harvesters auction uh, will be, well, they sold a little bit of ranch fox uh, yesterday. Um, prices look pretty good. And tomorrow will be all wild fur. So that's going to be kind of exciting to see. Um, I, I think the prices will be better than the NAFA auction um, pretty much across the board. But we'll, we'll have to wait and see. And uh, by the time you listen to this, that'll be over and done with. I'll have an update on trappingtoday.com. You can check out, um, and probably in the future episode, uh, I'll go over those prices. But anyway, um, had some extra time, so I'm loading up a few podcasts in advance. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we'll hopefully be able to get them out regularly. So anyway, um, I wanted to cover a few things that I did not get a chance to uh, get to in the last episode. And the first thing is a new trapping documentary film called A Life on the Line and that was produced by Ice River Films uh, uh, kind of a small startup uh, com film company out of uh, Manitoba and uh, the the guy's name is uh, Sam Carney that uh, is kind of the main character or the main figure in, in the documentary uh, along with his father and <clears throat> It's a really, really, really neat uh, trapping documentary. So uh, this thing aired on APTN. That's oh, Aboriginal People's Television Network uh, up in up there in Manitoba. And it there's a a show called Real Insights that's on that TV channel. Uh, and and this was an episode, and it was, I believe it's about 45 minutes long of actual film time plus whatever commercials they had. So if you get that, if you're in Canada, you could see that. And uh, if you're in Canada, I believe you can go to go to APTN uh, and maybe watch the documentary online. Now, unfortunately for us Americans, uh, we I, I contacted APTN to see about getting that available for us to watch, like on YouTube or, or their website. And they are not licensed to distribute in in the US so there's some some weird thing with licensing there so we can't actually watch that according to them so for whatever whatever that's worth um, I actually was able to get a uh, special link to to watch that and 
it is it is an incredible documentary. So I just want to go over it, the the basics, because I think it's something that we should try to promote. And I'm hoping uh, Sam, I've been emailing back and forth with him a little bit. I'm I'm hoping he's considering getting that out on like a DVD uh, or or some place that we can watch it, because I think it's really neat for both for trappers and for non-trappers to to give them kind of an understanding of life on the trap line. So um, in a nutshell, Sam Carney is a young filmmaker, um, real life, there's no fiction whatsoever. He's a young filmmaker from uh, Manitoba, from from this uh, really small town, and uh, he, growing up, his his father, his dad, uh, Sam is half Métis, so that's M-E-T-I-S. That's the Aboriginal people there in Manitoba, um, in that area, western Manitoba. And his dad is a white man, um, but his... Sam Sam never trapped, but his dad trapped. All um, When his dad was, I believe, in his 30s or 40s, he met an old trapper, and he helped him out on the trap line and got into it and really started to grow to love trapping. And he took over this registered trap line in Manitoba when when the old timer died, and uh, so his name's Chuck Carney, um, and and he ran this trap line all while Sam was growing up, and uh, like a lot of young people, Sam did not have any interest in trapping whatsoever. Uh, something that I fear with my boys, I I hope that they, growing up, uh, will have an interest in in being on the trap line with me. But sometimes they don't, you know, and that's that's just the way things go. But uh, Sam grew up and he moved to the city to become a filmmaker. So he's working on these all these different documentaries and stuff. And um, he really got to thinking about his, you know, his ancestry and and uh, where he came from and trapping as a part of heritage um, in that area. And he decided to for for one winter to to make several trips to his dad's trap line and stay with him in his trapping cabin and, and try to learn how to trap. And so the the film basically follows Sam for a few trips, uh, once in the fall, once in the middle of winter, and once in the spring, uh, where Sam and Chuck uh, get together and go on the line, and, and Sam learns how to set traps, how to make different sets. They, they trap, um, they show him catching a mink, they set uh, several Martin sets, uh, they trap beavers, both through the ice and in open water, and uh, it, it's really neat. It shows them, you know, skinning, fur, uh, putting up, putting up beaver pelts, and and all that, and, and you know, making the catches and everything. So, uh, it, but it, it's not really like strictly trapping focused. It's a lot of it is about the relationship between a father and a son, and what trapping means to to the father. Um, that trap line and how much he loves being out there, the relationship with the animals and with the land, uh, showing how he's, you know, he's a caretaker of that trap line and, and managing animal populations and, and how how much it shows how much we as trappers uh, love the animals that and animal populations that that we are harvesting and, and want to maintain those in healthy healthy conditions. So it's really cool and. Uh, and uh, I, the interaction between those two guys was great to see. Uh, <clears throat> Sam seems like a really good young man, and and Chuck, I I would love to hang out with that guy. He's just a a real <laughs> he he's he's a hardcore trapper. He's a tough guy, and and uh, really 
seems like a really easygoing, nice guy that'd be be a lot of fun to get along with. Um, so anyway, that's Life on the Line. You can go to alifeontheline.com. That's all one word, alifeontheline.com. And you can see the, that's their website for the film. And you can see the trailer, which is about two, two and a half minutes. And uh, you'll see a bunch of highlights on, on the film. Um, and uh, I hope that uh, sometime in the future, whether it's in a few months or a f- couple years, uh, maybe I'll have an update for you telling you that's available for us all to watch. So anyway, um, I, it's always great to see those uh, positive trapping stories and, and uh, in, in really, really good quality film. It's uh, it's really high quality uh, filming, editing, and, and so on. Uh, pretty neat. So that's uh, that's life on the line. Moving on, um, I had an interesting little uh, interview, I guess you could call it, uh, from a young man who was working on a school project on fur the fur trade, uh, fur trapping, the fur trade industry. Uh, he was kind of interested in uh, getting a better handle around, uh, you know, the, how the historic fur trade uh, relates to today's fur trading and trapping and uh, what's changed over time and how things have evolved. And he seems like, uh, you know, pretty well pro pro trapping, uh, but just really didn't have a lot of information. And he found my website and uh, <clears throat> asked me if he could use some of that information from the site and, and from the podcast. Um, so if you're listening, young man, I won't give out your name, but <clears throat> I, I do want to share these questions and answers, and, and I, I don't think uh, he'll have any issues with that. It, it doesn't reveal anything about him, um, but uh, you know, all the answers are mine. Uh, this is the response that I typed up to him, and uh, you may not agree with it uh, yourself as a trapper, uh, or you may, um, but I feel that it kind of encompasses uh, the way I feel as a trapper and how I think uh, we how I feel that trappers should be seen in, uh, from the perspective of the general public. So I'm going to uh, take some time just to read through those questions and answers and and uh, hope, hope it provides a little bit of information uh, for you when you're talking to people who really don't know a lot about trapping. So uh, the first question he asked is, how do you as a fur trader feel about the rules and regulation around fur trading today. What changes would you make to these rules? And here's my response. Uh, Trappers are highly regulated these days. Each state that allows trapping has requirements governing the way trappers operate. Some of these rules are in place to protect wildlife populations, while others are in response to cultural values in society and local public opinion. You know, it's the whole political aspect of of regulations. It's clear that a certain amount of regulation is necessary to ensure fur harvesters act responsibly, consider the needs of non-trappers and the public good, and promote healthy populations of fur-bearing animals. In general, I'd like to see changes to trapping rules that would rely more on science-based research and population level management and sustainability. Many existing regulations are based more on past cultural values and human emotions and may not reflect uh, the best available science. And uh, so it's, <clears throat> it's kind of a difficult balance that wildlife managers have to maintain. So uh, that was my answer. And <clears throat> I, 
you know, I, I kind of, it's a tough question to navigate because, you know, we are, we are highly regulated and some of those regulations make a lot of sense, uh, but not all of them make sense to us as trappers. And, and that's because of the whole political aspect of things. And, and because, you know, when you're dealing with laws and rules and regulations, <clears throat> sometimes you have regulations that uh, are on the books for decades after they're, they no longer are necessary or, or effective. And uh, just an example is for uh, forever, almost forever it seemed, uh, in Maine we had a regulation that non-residents were not allowed to trap for beaver. So they could buy a trapping license and trap for any other species, but they couldn't trap for beaver. Um, <clears throat> it was, you know, back when beavers were a mainstay of uh, of the trap line of, of the economic uh, well-being of a lot of people in, in rural Maine. And uh, so it was their bread and butter, trapping beavers, and, and uh, they were very protective of that as, as Maine residents. Uh, however, uh, tr- tr- beavers aren't worth anything these days, hardly, and we have an overpopulation of beavers. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people would argue that we should be encouraging non-residents to come and help us harvest some of these beavers. So um, that's one that it, it took probably 20, 30 years for that regulation to catch up, and it, it's still... Um, there's a reciprocal clause there where non-residents can now trap for beavers if their state allows main residents to trap for beavers. So, um, you know, it's just the way things kind of happen over time. So moving on to the second question, and this is where we get into some ethical stuff. He says, uh, do you feel that it's cruel to kill animals for their fur? Is killing for food different than killing for fur? So here's my answer. I do not feel that it's cruel to kill animals for their fur, for meat, or otherwise. Animals are a valuable part of our world. They all play important roles in the ecosystem, and trappers like myself want to see healthy populations of these animals. The difference we have with the animal rights crowd is that folks like myself see these animals as a resource. More specifically, we see them as a natural, renewable resource that can be harvested sustainably. We need to be very careful about making moral judgments when it comes to this whole human-animal relationship. Um, Because one person's thoughts on killing can be different than another's. And who's to say who's right? Uh, I I also included, you know, we all feel a certain level of guilt when we take an animal's life. You know, that's that's a natural thing. Um, And just going off, uh, off cue here for a second... That, that whole ethical, moral ethical aspect of harvesting animals is a very interesting topic. And there's a professor out of uh, Cornell University named James Tantillo. He gave a talk at University of Maine when I was a student there, and, and it was a fascinating, fascinating topic he covered. And it was about the morals and ethics uh, of, of sport hunting and, uh, and the whole idea of, of that feeling you get when you, when you make a kill on an animal. Um, he, he referred to it as something called tragic wisdom. Um, and that's something I'll probably get into in a future episode of the podcast, um, because it's an important part, uh, of how we think as hunters and trappers. And, uh, and he had some really interesting conclusions and I, I think I really resonate with a lot of what he said. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> some we all feel a certain level of guilt some more than others uh, that's natural and it's a personal thing it should remain so when I kill an animal the job's done in a manner that I consider quick and humane 
and I feel good about that. In unmanaged populations, however, where there's no human-caused harvest, animal populations often become too abundant for their available habitat and food source. These populations are regulated by Mother Nature, and long, slow deaths from starvation and disease are common. One could argue, and, and this is an interesting argument that I don't hear made oftentimes, but, but I think it's, uh, it's plausible, um, allowing starvation and disease that result from humans not getting involved in harvesting is much more cruel than trapping. Um, so, so you could actually argue that trapping is more humane because you're preventing the starvation and disease. So it's all about perspective. Uh, now onto this whole meat killing, meat trapping thing. Um, some people suggest that they think it's more ethical to kill for meat than to kill for fur. Um, however, to me, killing is killing. Uh, the animal's just as dead, regardless of the reason that you killed it. Um, and some animals are, you can eat them and, and they're excellent resource. Um, I mentioned Meat Trapper before in the podcast. He has a podcast on, on Clint Locklear's Trapping Radio, um, meattrapper.com. And uh, he talks about trapping beavers and eating them. And, and beavers are excellent, excellent eating um, if, if you prepare them right, <coughs> harvest them right, and cook them right. Um, but for the animals that are unfit to eat, their fur is a very valuable resource and can be used to benefit humans. And I don't see anything wrong with that. Some will suggest that by not wearing fur, they're saving countless animal lives from suffering. That is a ridiculous argument. Um, pain and suffering, common in the wild. Uh, and, and back to the whole example that habitat can only support a certain number of animals. In biology terms, we call this carrying capacity. That's the amount uh, of number of animals or, or biomass of animals that can be supported in a certain habitat or habitat niche. If we stop harvesting animals, many populations get driven closer to this carrying capacity um, and they get to the point where starvation and disease begin to come into play. Animal suffering in the wild is real. Um, it, it happens all the time. It's just not seen by humans on a regular basis. And usually what isn't seen doesn't seem to bother people as much. Um, <clears throat> so it's easy for people to say, you know, uh, trappers are cruel, they're causing these animals to suffer and so on. Um, that same person uh, will see a, a wounded deer in that's been hit on the on the side of the road in front of their yard, and um, will will go absolutely nuts and run over to call up the game wardens and the state police and and the local police department and please put it out of its misery or feed the animal and try to save it and and it's just the worst thing in the world. Um, but for every one of those, there are dozens and dozens of animals. Um, hundreds of animals uh, that that encounter a similar situation where they're suffering and nobody sees it. Uh, does that make that suffering any less real? I I would argue absolutely not. Um, so 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 we again back to the perspective. Um, we have to think about that in, in perspective. All right. So moving on, he he moved on to talk about the fur trade in general. He said fur trading has evolved from the past. Do you think fur trading is better than it was back then, humanely and as a business? <clears throat> and so I just <clears throat> uh, responded uh, in general how how things how I see things that have changed. Um, the fur trade has changed a lot in recent history, as has fur trapping. Fur trapping is far more regulated than it once was. 
Fur trappers as a whole are more knowledgeable about the animals they're harvesting and have a wider variety of tools available. Just think about this podcast, trappingaday.com, trapperman.com, all the different forums, Facebook groups and everything. There's so much trapping related information out there that was never available in the past. Um, And we have so many more tools, all these different gadgets and trapping trap line equipment that people are coming up with it's just been amazing the this revolution in trapping trapping is more efficient trappers uh you know they we can cover our trap lines of vehicles uh, pickup trucks four-wheelers snowmobiles and so on trappers are more accountable than they've ever been we get an answer to a growing uh, sector of the public that doesn't understand what we do and wildlife populations are generally much healthier than they were 50 to 100 years ago. I, in that term, in that sense of healthy, I mean um, they're much more abundant. Uh, in marketing terms, however, trappers receive less money for their pelts overall, and the markets become much more globalized. Demand now. Now here's where I, I probably overlook something a little bit. Somebody called me out on Trapper Man, and I appreciate that. Um, I, I stated here that demand for North American fur was historically domestic. And what I meant to say was that, you know, back in 50 to 75 years ago, and even 100 years ago, if you look in the old fur trade magazines and journals, you look at the fur buyers that were up around back then, there was a lot of fur trade in New York City. And people were wearing fur domestically in New York City. Um, I should have been more specific about that, but a, a large portion around that turn of the century up until the 30s and 40s, a large portion of uh, the fur that we trapped was consumed here in the U.S. Now, uh, the guy on Trapper Man pointed out um, the fact, and he's right, that uh, historically there was a global fur trade um, that, you know, from the Russians and the Chinese and and, uh, Western Europeans, um, that was a huge driver in in the fur industry, and I I should have clarified that, but, but anyway... Just a little point of correction. Um, and, and what I, I continued on to say, uh, now the major markets for our fur, instead of being domestic, are Russia and China. Uh, many of the big players in the U.S. and Europe's fashion industry have moved away from fur since the 1980s and kind of transitioned to, to this whole fur-free thing. Um, but in addition to fur, foreign markets, there are small niche markets uh, for fur popping up in the U.S. And, and I think some of those will be quite successful. But it'll never, probably never be uh, the big fur-consuming um, sector that, that we once had. Um, it's just culturally not, not what's cool anymore, you know. And, and starting around the 90s, you had PETA and all the, the crazy, you know, eco-activists that were, uh, you know, turning mink loose from the mink farms. And they were throwing paint on women's fur coats and stuff. And... They created this kind of stigma that fur was evil and bad, and uh, I believe we started to pull away from that a little bit. I think uh, the millennial generation tends to have less of a, you know, guilty feeling about you know fur being bad, uh, but at the same time, that whole idea that fur was cool, um, we kind of lost that. And and in the same token, um, around the same period, this fur has been replaced by a lot of synthetic um, materials uh, that that are um, very comfortable, very warm, um, maybe not as good utilitarian-wise as fur in a lot of cases, but um, they've taken over the market. 
Um, so that's been the big change. Moving on, um, th this is a really interesting question uh, that he asked. And uh, I think it's, it's interesting because it was based on an assumption uh, that... Uh, that is completely untrue, but it, it really, it, it reveals people's thoughts about, um, about trapping in general and, and how, you know, maybe I think potentially they're, they're very misguided or don't quite get the whole picture. Um, so again, we talked about this sustainable harvest and how it prevents a lot of this suffering and starvation and disease. Um, but he, you know, still was questioning the cost of fur trade in, you know, impacts on animals. And uh, this question was, do you feel the benefits of fur trading outweigh the costs of the trade? And and I liken this to uh, comparing to other industries about costs and benefits. And and, and from my perspective, I, I hadn't really thought about this a lot beforehand. I'm glad I did this whole exercise because it, it really popped up in my head. Um, and I responded that the fur trade is unique in that it provides benefits to wildlife management while also harvesting a valuable resource. So basically you're dealing with, uh, you're not dealing with a cost and the benefit, you're dealing with two benefits. Um, the cost, I feel, uh, you know, whatever cost these animal rights crowd tends to um, believe fur trapping uh, <clears throat> results in, I think it is, is much more of a benefit in responsible wildlife management. And so I compared it to other industries like mining, uh, oil and gas. Those are very important industries. They provide huge benefits to society in transportation and heating and <clears throat> all the different materials that we have. Um, mining, oil and gas are awesome for our society. And we, we've gone, um, I mean, Alaska probably wouldn't have half its population if it wasn't for oil, gas, and mining. And in a lot of other states, you could say the same thing. Um, however, they do come at a cost because those resources are not renewable um, in the sense that uh, we're depleting them uh, far faster than they'll ever be replaced. So um, the cost in that case is the depletion of a non-renewable resource. However, in the trapping industry, you have a win-win situation where uh, you have a benefit of, of helping to manage for healthy wildlife populations, and you also can harvest that resource. Um, so so there, in my view, there really is no cost. And I think we should uh, really point that out more often as trappers, that, that this is really one of those win-win situations, and, and I think it's pretty neat. Um, and finally, the last question was, if you could say anything to an animal activist organization, what would you say? <laughs> and, uh, and my answer is I wouldn't. So uh, I, I, I think that's a, that's a common question. And, and honestly, it's just not productive to, to try and have conversations with, with people on that, on that end of things. It, um, you can try to have some respectful conversations, but they're typically not productive. So I said, I usually don't say much to them because it's unproductive to try convincing animal rights folks to change their views on trapping. You know, they have their views. They're very passionate about them like we are passionate about ours as trappers. Um, but rather, I think it's a lot more important to communicate with the vast majority of people who don't know much about trapping 
and don't have strong opinions in either direction because uh, we can have a more reasonable conversation. You know, we can discuss these things uh, from a point of uh, logic, common sense, reason, and, uh, and, and they can be, you know, uh, persuaded to think a certain way uh, based on a logical argument. Um, that's a productive conversation, having a respectful discussion uh, with other people who, who have an open mind. Um, and, and just to cap that off, I, I said I think it's really important for people to try thinking about these issues from a less emotional and more rational perspective. Because emotions and feelings are important in everyday life, but they don't help us make common sense decisions when it comes to wildlife management. Uh, so it's easy to say the common thing we hear, I don't like that practice. I don't like trapping. I think it's cruel. It should be banned. It, that shouldn't be allowed. Um, and then we have ballot initiatives and people ban trapping in different states. And <clears throat> it's all based on emotion. Um, it, it's much more difficult to think about it from a logical standpoint, to think about it from someone else's perspective, like the perspective of a trapper, the whole, you know, Sam Carney going back to his father's trap line, um, people seeing that. Uh, and consider the many elements around trapping wildlife management that don't involve human emotion, like population control and, uh, <clears throat> you know, healthy populations and sustainable harvest, uh, renewable harvest. Uh, so I, I guess I would ask folks to reserve judgment about other people's values and ethics. Um, and the final point I made was that it's a bit narcissistic to assume our views on ethics and killing animals are superior to somebody else's. Um, and, and I'm going to, I'll throw out an example of that, and, and it probably puts me in a vulnerable situation, but um, I, I guess i opening up on the podcast, so I don't mind saying it. Uh, I, I have an Instagram account, and I see a lot of trapping pictures on, on Instagram, um, and there's a lot of pictures of catches. Um, I watch a lot of trapping videos, and, and there's animals in, that are, you know, jumping around in the trap, and... Um, they, the trappers snap the pictures, uh, do a little video clip, and uh, make the dispatch, take care of the animal quickly and humanely. Um, however, I, I do have a little feeling of discomfort when I see an animal looking at the, at the camera. Um, I, in my opinion, I, I would rather, um, and, and you, it, I, when I was younger, I felt a little differently about this. I, I didn't mind it, but, you know, I'd, just where I'm at in life right now, maybe, and maybe it's, uh, maybe it's just something with me and, and, uh, my personal feelings about it, but, uh, at least in the near future, you're not going to see any, any pictures of, uh, of live animals like that, um, on, uh, on his, on my Instagram account. Uh, I just, I, it's just not my thing. So, uh, I'd rather go up to an animal, make a quick, clean kill, take a picture of it after, after that's been done. Um, so, it, you know, that's just perspective. Um, at the same time, you think about that and someone says, oh, oh, see, that's cruel. Those people are doing that. And he even called them out. Well, guess what? Um, a lot of times I've, I've seen uh, guys, um, and I won't mention it, but but you know who you are. Uh, and, and you're a really great guy and you know what you're doing. And this guy caught an animal and showed a video of him going up to the animal and and, you know, man animal's alive in the trap. I think it was a fox. And he goes up, puts a catch pole on it, releases it, and the fox takes off. Completely humane. 
there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And it, it was really cool that he did that because it showed that um, it showed that animal there wasn't a bunch of pain and suffering and the animal didn't chew its foot off or anything. Yeah, it was a little stressed out when it came up to it, but you know what? Boom, a few seconds later, he was out of the trap and he was off. So um, it's all about your perspective, about your ethics, and and uh, and I'm not judging people who, who take those pictures. I, I would just say, uh, consider other people's feelings and thoughts and and don't go over the edge where where you're, you're gonna really put trapping in a bad light but uh, but we we need to try and think about it with uh, a little bit of empathy for other people's feelings on uh, on uh, on you know the, the way we as trappers interact with animals and, and of course hunting is the same way um, <clears throat> we're all different so anyway uh, that was it for that interview uh, I that may have gone a little longer than I wanted it to, but I I really wanted the opportunity to to provide a little bit of um, editorial uh, comments on on how that interview went and give my thoughts on it. So uh, anyway, I posted that up on Trapper Man uh, just so some other people could read it, maybe get some some pointers from it. So uh, finally, a couple other quick things I want to talk about. Um, Oh, the Montana Trappers Oral History. I've been trying to go through those one at a time. And I listened to an interview from a guy named Willis Kent. Uh, again, this is from the early 1980s. Uh, a guy, guys from the University of Montana Project, uh, they interviewed a bunch of old trappers. And this guy has had a pretty neat story. You, you'll, If you get a chance to go over there, just Google Montana Trappers Oral History. And uh, look for Willis Kent on there. Uh, he... He like uh, spent like Fuller Lagerman. He was from Missouri. He lived down on along the Mississippi River, I believe. And he uh, he was uh, his trapping was in his blood from an early um, age. His uh, his father, both of his grandfathers, all trapped. Uh, so he he learned to trap from his dad. I think he caught his first fox when he was twelve. He was catching small you know muskrats and so on when he was just big enough to barely set a trap. Um, and uh, he lived there and trapped there in Missouri for a very long time. Uh, commercial fishing was going on the way out, and, and uh, things weren't looking too hot there, and he got more into trapping when you could you could pay for things. He, like he mentioned, when he first started around that Depression era, um, fur wasn't super high, but you could make, um, you could make, I think he was saying, uh, a muskrat or a skunk was worth a day's wages. Uh, coon or mink, one of the two, was a week's wages for one pelt. So uh, obviously you can imagine a lot of people were out trapping and you could actually make a living doing it. Um, pretty, pretty cool. And uh, he actually ended up in Montana because he was having health issues with his sinuses, was all messed up, I guess, and he had a doctor friend that moved to Montana, he moved to Great Falls, and he told Willis to come visit, and he went visited there for a month, and his sinus issues cleared up, and he decided to move to Montana. <laughs> um, he did a bunch of trapping there, a bunch of different areas, uh, mostly in that northwest Montana area. He uh, bought a service station, he he ran that and trapped. He ended up buying a dude ranch, um, Went in partners of people, trapped up northwest Montana. Ended up going back, repurchasing the service station that he had previously sold. 
and uh, still trapping at the time of the interview. So on uh, a bunch of kids, I think he had oh six kids uh, at the time, and and they all grew up trapping, and his wife helped out with skin and furs and stuff. So uh, interesting cat. A <clears throat> um, couple other things. I on trappingaday.com recently, I reviewed a DVD from Kyle Cotts that was called uh, Glands, a Trapper's Commodity. So um, not a lot of DVDs out there on, on glands, just specifically. This one's a 40-minute long DVD. Uh, most of it, probably 30, 25, 30 of those minutes are specifically showing uh, glands and how to extract them. And, um, I won't go into too much detail for interest of time, um, but for, the, I don't know, I think it's like, oh, $25 DVD or something, uh, well worth it, well worth it, because uh, uh, I think if you're not extracting glands and you're catching a decent amount of fur, you're you're really missing out on a lot of money. You're, you're tossing a lot of money away, potentially. So uh, Kyle shows you specifically um, the coyote, the fox coyote, that was really good. Uh, he showed how, you know, all the different areas in those animals that the that the glands were, and in video form, it, it's uh, it's a lot easier to to learn how to find those. Uh, he shows exactly how to get to each of them. He shows how much fat you can leave on, how much meat you can leave on, or should cut off, uh, uh, all that different things, and, and talks about details on how you should preserve them and what most buyers want. Your buyers are typically going to be lure makers. Um, they're always looking for glands. And uh, glands uh, takes a lot to fill, like they usually want them in quarts or pints or gallons. And it uh, takes a lot of animals sometimes to fill, a, takes a lot of weasels to fill a, a pint jar. So, um, you know, it, it takes a while to add up, but especially if you're skinning fur for people or, or a fur buyer, or if, if you just, you know, you're, you're catching a lot of uh, certain species of critters, uh, other than possum and coon, yeah, you know, all the mustelids, all the weasel family. You want to be saving those glands, um, and for your own lure making. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm saving a bunch of glands for to make my own lures, and that's uh, talk about an addiction there. Um, and <clears throat> so that's Kyle Cott's DVD. Get on there on trappingaday.com, and and you should be able to find that. Uh, if you can't, uh, just use the search bar, uh, search for glands. Or go in the categories uh, on uh, trapping videos, it should be. And uh, moving on, talking about lure making, um, I get I get Russ Carmen's book, and I I should have bought it a long time ago, and I'm gonna hesitate to say too much about it. Um, it's called Musk Mystery and Misconceptions: The Lure Maker's Guide by Russ Carmen. And uh, he actually dis- <laughs> It's funny in the book he actually discourages people sharing. Uh, sharing it uh, with with many others, um, but he published it, so <laughs> it's out there. If you search lure making uh, books on any of the major trap supply dealers, uh, again, I got mine from Cots Brothers, um, <clears throat> but most of the dealers have have this book, so it's there. Um, I I won't go into the details. Uh, I'll leave it up to you. Put it this way: if you're just looking at uh, a brief, you know, overviews on lore making and not getting into super detail. Uh, you probably want to steer towards uh, uh, Nick Wyshynski's Nick Wyshynski's books on the subject. I've got two of those. Um, formulating uh, lures and baits, I think, is the one. Formulating compounding lures and baits 
is the one I would recommend you to get for just a basic overview, broad overview. Uh, I've got it here, Formulating and Compounding Animal Lures and Baits by Nick Wyshynski. He's got another one, Chopper's Guide to Using Essential Oils, Essences, Powders, and Crystals. That's basically just like an index of all the different um, ingredients. Uh, and then Kellen Kotz has uh, the Encyclopedia Lure Bait Making, which is very similar to that book, a lot of the ingredients. Uh, the Carmen book, if you're really serious about this game and you want to get into it, um, <clears throat> I, have a lot, I haven't met a lot of lore makers yet, but I've, um, I don't know of anybody that has spent as much time and gone into as much detail as this guy has gone. And I mean, he really brings it to, to, uh, closer to a science, um, than the art that most people, most people it's trial and error and, and it is with him too, but, um, he talks about some pretty incredibly in-depth, complex things. Um, if you're not into heavy reading, you don't want this book. Um, if if you really want to want to know what you're doing in lore making, um, th this is the book to have. So uh, that's that's as far as I'll go with that right now. Um, I will say, you know, I I I'm young and ambitious, and and I have a lot of thoughts, and and I always I admit that I'm not always right. Um, <clears throat> And I, I've made a lot of statements about my feelings and, and my uh, perspective on lure, using lures and their effectiveness and lure making. And, and uh, you know, I still, I believe there's a lot of hocus pocus and a lot of, there, there's just a lot of hype and marketing around lures that I, I think that um, a lot of them are not as complex as we think. Uh, however, you know, I, I will admit that Russ Carmen's book has has gotten me really challenging uh, everything that I say about and think about lure making. So um, I, I will just say that uh, it, it's it's really it's going to be a really interesting journey for me going through this and, and learning as much as I can. Uh, it's exciting. And uh, I hope to uh, to be using this information to, to come up with some different lures and test different lures and and uh, just just get better at the trade. Um, I, I I do you know I still feel pretty strongly that you know for in a lot of cases uh, the lure is not the essential part of of uh, catching that animal. And for instance, animals like Martin and Fisher uh, <clears throat> probably a little bit of skunk essence mixed with some Vaseline is uh, is gonna gonna be. 90% effective, as effective as anything else you can get to call them in. Um, the the big difference in the rub here is the difference between the 90 and the 95%, or the difference between the 90 and the 98%, or 90 and 93% maybe. And uh, I'm I'm just getting interested in this enough that I'd love to see if I can figure that out, and uh, and maybe figure out what that difference might be. So so I do have. Um, I do have that lure that I made that long distance call um, that's made with a grease base and, and I'll be probably share I think I'll be sharing that with people, the ingredients and everything uh, on that and I'll continue to make that. Um, but I want to see if I can make it better. Um, whether it's uh, whether it makes a difference if you catch 100 Martin in a year, maybe, it, maybe it'll catch you two, three more, maybe 20, doubt it. Um, maybe zero, I don't know. Um, but, I, but I'm going to continue experimenting with it and, and, uh, it's quite a journey. It's a lot of fun. So anyway, with that, uh, 
covered a lot of ground here, and I appreciate you tuning in. Uh, I guess no advertisements. I'll say, uh, you know, you want to learn more about the fur market and you haven't bought my book yet, Fur Profit, Trapper's Guide to the Modern Fur Market, you can pick that up uh, either at trappingtoday.com or uh, it's available on Amazon. Um, anyway, take take a look at that. I uh, would, would really appreciate uh, you checking it out. And with that, uh, thank you very much for tuning in. Have a excellent, excellent time um, in, in the end of the trapping season and the beginning of planning and thinking about next year's trapping season. And we'll catch you in the next episode.